Happy New Year! <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's way past the new year. You guys don't realize this, but when we record, we have a little countdown timer until the recording starts. So I just thought I would be dorky this time and, and mess with you all and make Amy laugh. So... Mm. Uh, anywho, welcome back. It's not the new year. It's like two months past the new year at this point. But uh, we are joined yet again by Amy Hollenkamp, RD. By the way, could we, we're just going to mix it up left and right this episode. Are you Ooh. ready? I'm going to keep you on your toes, Amy. Mm. Can you like briefly introduce yourself and tell the good listeners at home your Instagram handle and your website? We've never done this at the beginning of an episode. Sometimes we tell people our Instagram handle like at the way end of our episodes. But can you just briefly share? So you're an RD. Yes, I have a yawn that came on. An unfortunately timed (laughs) yawn. I'm boring Um, her. I'm boring her. No, never. So I am Amy Hollenkamp. I'm a registered dietitian. I have an Instagram that's primarily... um, how I reach out to people. I do have a newsletter to all send out weekly, but my Instagram handle is Amy underscore Hollenkamp underscore RD. Um, I work primarily with IBS and SIBO folks. Uh, one-on-one I do kind of some program work too. Um, yeah. And I just try to have fun with it. That's- come, come to us with your poop problems. We can help you. Nix them in the nix them in the butt. There you go. Um, <laughs> I think it's nip them in the butt, but you're I could right. be incorrect. That's you, okay. We're gonna, I think it's nip it in the butt. You're right. We're gonna come up with new stuff. Um, yeah. and your website, which is actually this is how I found you initially. It's the SIBODiaries.com, right? Well, it's SIBODiaries.com. Shoot. Um, did you have in, like a Facebook moment? Did you drop the the or did I just make up the the? N- no, the the is in my is in my email. So like the seabodaries at gmail.com. So it's confusing. Mm, That's what's confusing. Um, That again, I haven't updated in a while, unfortunately, like my blog. It's um, okay. It's probably my fault because you've been creating content on this platform now instead. So it's okay. Exactly. I have another site too that hosts my program, which is called uh, seaborepair.com. Um, that's kind of, again, just more of like my program hosting website. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like the blog and that kind of content could be found at SIBODiaries.com. But yeah, and that's how all I good stuff. Initially. I used yeah. to send your blog articles to my patients all the time because I hey. would be like, hey, like this, this lady gets it. Isn't um, that so weird? I know. Basically, like, comes- like I was fangirling it up before we ever it's became like friends. come full circle. It has. I know um, it has. And then this yeah. year I got, or at the end of last year, I got to meet my science crush, Jason Hoverlack. Oh my gosh. Next, we're targeting Lucy Mailing. Come on, people. Like, this is this. Oh is yeah, good we stuff. need to reach back out to Lucy Mailing. We do. I think she showed interest, but I think she's just got stuff she, on her plate. Yeah, she has a baby too. Like, a little bit older than Cece, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, well, she like we'll disappeared from the internet for like a while without like, heaven forbid, she doesn't announce her pregnancy or her... <laughs> caring of with child online so that we could all know instead and i think again she kind of like goes i think fades in and out sometimes of like social media because she actually like researches um or gets busy heaven forbid um how dare she so again like i i feel like when we reached out to her and she was saying like 
she had, had, was had a baby recently. We were like, what? <laughs> like, we had you know, no idea. But like, she we, did, you know, to kind of put her on the spot a little bit without her realizing it, we did reach out to her and she did say she would be on our podcast right. one of these days. Right. So we're going to snag her for you guys. Mm-hmm. You just wait. We're, we're chomping at the bit to have all sorts of good guests for you. Um, we've had our eyes on her for a long time. So hopefully we can make that happen in, in the new year now. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. First of all, my brain lesion is to not introduce myself. So likewise, I'm Nikki Deneza. Um, I have too many websites and too many email addresses for any one human being, but you can find pretty much anything you would want from me from fodmapfreedom.com backslash social. Um, there might be a www. I should probably know that. I'm 99% sure there's a www in front of that URL. So it's www.fodmapfreedom.com slash social or like backslash social. And that's just like what I use as the link in bio for all my stuff. So it's got links for if you want to work with me one-on-one, links for if you want to join FODMAP Freedom, my group coaching program. I've got a link to my YouTube channel. I've got a link to this, the podcast YouTube channel. I've got a link for Instagram, which is gut.microbiome.queen. But it's kind of like the one-stop shop. And I've got a lot of freebies on there as well. And they're just kind of all like piled in there so that they're really easy to find. Um, but yeah, yeah I would say my, my freebies are in the links of my Insta. Yeah. You're looking for like freeze freebie, yeah, like little guides and downloadables right. and handouts and whatnot. And then obviously like the podcast, like you can listen to that for free. Um, so that's, it's a, it's that's a mega freebie. I know it really is. We give away all yeah. our saucy secrets on here. And this episode is going to be no exception. So last episode, we talked about candida, right? We kind of, we like staged this beautifully. We talked about antibiotics, which can cause candida overgrowth. Then we talked about candida. We kind of revisited candida since we had done one episode on it previously, reemphasized the need for good bacteria and dietary diversity, poked some holes in the theory that you need to go like ultra, ultra low carb, zero sugar, keto in order to fight candida. I think that that has not been definitively proven at this point. And we talked about that last episode. Um, We talked about some antimicrobials that maybe you haven't heard of before. Um, This one, though, I think tentatively, I'm going to name this episode advanced candida protocols or strategies, because this is like, all right, we've moved beyond just nuking it, right? Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't take a great deal of finesse. It doesn't take a great deal of like clinical know-how to put two and two together and be like, oh, the person has thrush or the person has vaginal candidiasis or the person has like symptoms of GI yeast overgrowth. Let's just drop a bomb on it. And then hooray, you're done. And like those people, the, the kind of simpler cases would would benefit or like the shorter term cases would probably benefit from our previous conversation. And then they could just be like, all right, I'm done. Like, I don't need anything more beyond that. Uh, But as a lot of people know, listening to this episode, uh, these problems can become very persistent and stubborn and ingrained. And a big part of that, which will kind of like give all of us nightmares, but just buckle up for this episode is there's this whole wide world of what's called pathogen evasion strategies, where 
Basically, it's a fancy way in the research of saying that the critters are just as smart as we are, and they really don't want to die. So they have developed mechanisms by which they can evade or avoid our immune system, the parts of our body that would normally kill them. And candida and fungal species are no exception to this. They have pathogen evasion strategies, they can manipulate our machinery, they can manipulate the gut lining, they can manipulate our immune system, which is the primary focus of this episode. And there, there is very much a case where some people need to address the immune function and the immune imbalance piece of it in order to clear persistent pathogens. In this case, we're largely focusing on candida. So that's what I wanted to talk about today instead of just like, all right, you you took monolaurin or you took caprylic acid or you took SF722, whatever they call that one now. Like, okay, you took something and like maybe you felt a bit better, maybe you didn't. But if if you're still struggling with candida despite you know, dietary changes, despite a lot of supplements, despite like a lot of the normal stuff for candida, I think this is going to be the episode for you. Um, Mm. I don't know. Have you seen any clients like that, where it's just like, you keep hitting it with the candida stuff, and it's really like unrelenting? Have you seen a lot of that, Amy? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think it can be somewhat analogous to the SIBO situation, to some degree, um, where, there's underlying dysfunction in your defense system. So like if you don't have, if your immune system isn't online and able to really help balance out or again, keep things in check from a fungal standpoint, you're going to run into problems. I think again, like it's almost like an antifungal defense is your immune system to some degree. And I do think this is something that's, that's frustrating about the conventional medicine world where they're like, oh, only someone that's insanely immunocompromised can get candida. Like you hear that from doctors thinking like, oh, this doesn't exist except in like that cancer patient that's on immunosuppressants um, or again, someone like gravely, gravely ill. So if someone comes into their practice with what they think is like chronic candida that they can't get rid of they're kind of brushed off so i think that we've known for a while that like candida can become really pervasive in a body where their immune system isn't up and running effectively um but i think the conventional medical system goes to the extreme where like certainly that can lead to like really insane cases of candida but there's probably a number of people too that might not have like that degree of immunosuppression um that are gonna struggle with candida and maybe it it manifests as like maybe a slightly low white blood cell count like i've i've seen that a lot when it comes to candida um being problematic like if your white blood cell count is lower than normal. I know even for myself, I was having low white blood cell issues along my journey and like probably because I was undernourished and stuff when I was trying to manage the candida. I was waiting for that to come out. Right. It's like probably because I just like was not doing things that would help keep my immune system healthy. And therefore again, like my white blood cells tanked and, um, 
so yeah, I, I think that there's like this idea that you have to be like so immunosuppressed in the conventional world. That's a little bit um, extreme, like in the sense that you have to be that to to have chronic candida and the immune system be at play. But I think there's a lot of people that have like suboptimal immune function and candida issues that wouldn't fall into that category or like what would be deemed like immunocompromised by the conventional system. Yeah, I agree. And that's such a good place to start because for the 800th time on this podcast and the 800th time talking to you, um, again, like we're kind of in the middle once Mm -hmm. again, in a way where like conventional medicine is in this realm of like, practically nobody has candida, right? Mm -hmm. Like unless you are overtly, extremely immunocompromised, cancer patient taking a buttload of steroids, taking an immune inhibitor, you know, something that extreme, if you're Mm -hmm. not in that camp, then this is not a problem for you. And like, we're all kind of like frothing at the mouth saying, no, that's not correct. But then to, to kind of flip this on the other side, we have the functional world and like the naturopathic space and like just the internet in general, right? Like the knowledge base of the internet and influencers who make you candida paranoid and make people think that everybody has candida. And, right. I, and I remember like one person comes to mind. I don't even know what she's doing these days, but did you ever... Do you remember Grace Liu? Yeah. And she came up, like, she kind of was prominent for a year or two or three. And then she's, maybe I just left all the groups where she was prominent. But um, I don't know what she's up to this, this, in this day and age, years later. But she was one of those people who, like, I swear to God, she thought that every single person had candida. And, like, oat was the greatest test on planet Earth, bar none. And I just don't know, like, I never really bought into that line of thinking either. But there's this, this gray area in between where it's like, okay, maybe you're not overtly medically immunocompromised. Right. But maybe your immune system is compromised or dysfunctional enough that it still yields you more pathogen growth or like more fungal burden because you don't have that immune surveillance going on, mm-hmm. right? Because we all have candida, or we should, right. in our bodies and in our guts. And we'll talk about in a little bit why that might actually be a really good thing. But we all have yeast and fungal organisms in our gut. But like, not all of us have a problem with it. Similarly, the majority of us have E. coli in our gut, but not all of us have problems with E. coli overgrowth or an E. coli issue. And it's that idea of like, Um, And this actually segues into the first point I wanted to make, which is um, like there could be a quantity issue. And I think that's where the most press is is focused on, like the most most of what you're going to read on the Internet and most of what a clinician is going to talk to you about. And most of like the aim of a candida protocol is going to be at lowering your fungal burden, because the idea is that you know, normal is here, and you have something higher than normal, and you need to bring down the quantity of fungal organisms that you're dealing with. That is a real thing. But also, um, 
you could potentially have somebody who has a normal amount of fungi, but they're either particularly virulent. So we talked about that last time with like some of the data with um, inflammatory bowel disease, like the candida species that they carry might be more virulent, more nasty. It's making more toxins than a run-of-the-mill strain of candida. Or you could have a normal amount of regular run-of-the-mill candida, but for immunological reasons, you have lost tolerance to it. And your immune system is basically freaking out at the candida, and it thinks it's a threat, even though you have a perfectly normal amount of candida. That's a thing, too, is like loss of tolerance, virulence, or just the quantity. And honestly, we don't really have any testing that's going to indicate which one's which. Right, like you can maybe start to Mm. piece it together. Um, Like, again, if you have overt fungal growth, like thrush and vaginal candidiasis, or if you do a stool test and like clear as day, there's increased fungi, you know, like four plus or whatever on a stool test, like you could put two and two together that you probably have an increased quantity. But in the absence of something like in your face like that, it is hard to tell which of the three or any of these three that you're dealing with. You just have to kind of fiddle with some of the stuff and use your noodle and really like try to look at your case objectively and, and just experiment with stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think, um, yeah, it is really interesting because I feel as though people understand that, Like, there's some good bacteria and bad bacteria. And, like, and again, like, I don't know. That there needs to be balance between the bacteria. I feel like there's less of an understanding with candida that, oh, you have to have some sort of balance here. Two, where, like, there could be some beneficial yeast and some yeasts that, again, are virulent and more pathogenic. Um, So, again, there's that, like, dysbiosis like the imbalance of the yeast um that doesn't get much press i think at all i think you're right like in the same vein as like SIBO or gut bacterial dysbiosis like people don't talk about that as much i think they talk about it way more than the fungal but like i feel like in the SIBO space it's all about like oh my god you have like an overabundance of bacteria or an overabundance of the candida and it's like I think more often, a lot of the times people more so might have like some dysbiosis present where there's just imbalance of some of the microbes, whether that be like bacteria or fungal stuff. Well, I think that I agree. I think that if anything, we talk about it more with bacteria than we do with yeast. Honestly, I in all of the groups I'm in and all of the stuff that I watch on the internet, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody talk about fungal dysbiosis other than mm-hmm. us in this podcast. Um, it is the thing, though, like you could type in the words fungal dysbiosis on PubMed and pull up articles on this. Uh, there right. was one really, really good, really juicy one in, I think, 2016. And I believe we talked about that in our very first Candida episode back in season one. Um, but, you know, it is it is something that we're starting to get more of an understanding of. But as I think we mentioned recently, if our understanding of the bacterial microbiome is as bad as it is, I mean, like, it's amazing, but also it sucks, right? (laughs) Now imagine that we know 
one one hundredth of that right. amount of information 1%. about the fungi. Right. So we know almost nothing about the fungal ecosystem in and on our bodies. And it's just, it's so the wild, wild west. Right. And this, it drives me crazy because then you have people who state things as fact. And you know damn well that they're not basing it on research because the research literally doesn't exist. We right. only have, you know, maybe five or 10 decent years of good quality research on candida and fungal right. infections. Because like some of it too is that there's a limitation on testing and like the technology to try to detect these things and study these things. So right. anyway, that's a, a little side note is that this is a really tough topic because we're dealing with a very limited body of evidence and we just kind of have to be okay with that and try to speculate and noodle on it anyway. Um, but I want to go back to the idea that fungi might be good. Because again, I think we talked about in the last episode, the goal is not to be at like a zero fungal state. Like that's, A, it's not practical, it's never going to happen. But B, I don't think you want to strive for that anyway. Right. Because one thing that came up as I was researching a bit more and revisiting some old notes for this video one thing that came up was that fungal organisms, for better or for worse, tend to induce tolerance in the immune system, hmm. which is kind of wacky, seeing how like a lot of people with fungal issues have some degree of inflammation or immune disruption. But what I mean by that is there are chemicals called cytokines, and there are molecules produced by the immune system and there are cells within the immune system that are known for promoting tolerance. We talked about this in a recent episode. I think we titled it, My Body Reacts to Everything. We talked about the idea of tolerance. Um, but there are parts of the immune system that are there to teach the immune system to cool its jets and tolerate the stuff that they're seeing and not attack. And generally speaking, fungi promote those pathways. So fungi, if, if somebody's like feeling super nerdy and wants to research it or like speaking to Amy, cause I know you can, you can keep up with this. Um, generally speaking, fungal infections and fungal dysbiosis promotes a TH2 environment, which we're going to get to in a minute versus TH1, which isn't bad, but it is a slightly more inflammatory arm of the immune system just by the nature of how it works. Um, so it these organisms tend to promote TH2 immunity. They also tend to promote tolerogenic molecules like interleukin 10 and TGF beta and like T regulatory cells, like all of these parts of the immune system that tell everybody else, Hey, shh, be quiet. It's okay, man. Like we don't need to attack this candida. And again, like having a bit of that on board is a great thing. But what was interesting, as I was revisiting this lecture, um, the lecturer proposed, so follow me on this one, if fungi promote tolerance, which mm. is generally seen as anti-inflammatory, right? and then you go on, on a kick, on a protocol, and you nuke the fungi, and you bring down the quantity of fungi that you have, you're also bringing down the number of fungi that can tell the immune system to chill the F out and tolerate stuff. 
So in the process of killing this potential pathogen, you're also taking away an anti-inflammatory signal to the immune system. And he proposed that maybe part of what we identify as a Herxheimer reaction or a die-off reaction Mm. might be because you're killing off the thing that was inducing tolerance. And the net result is that your immune system tolerates less stuff and becomes more inflamed. I think that is deeply, deeply, deeply fascinating. Yeah, that's so interesting because it can almost, again, like there can almost be a little bit of an an analogy to like endotoxins too. Like endotoxins from bacteria like can prime the immune system in a way that's very helpful. But if you're overloaded by endotoxins, like then it's problematic. And it could be in a similar vein. Like I, I know like when sometimes when you take antibiotics and the overall endotoxin load comes down, it can make your immune system a little bit more lazy. So and make you more susceptible for like, like your immune system is almost down for the count. It can't regulate microbes as well in that kind of environment. So again, I think you're, you're explaining that the same thing happens with microbes to a degree. Um, Yeah. With fungi in this case. Right. Right. Sorry. With, with fungi. So yeah, that's so interesting. And again, I think like, Make sure you talk close to your oh, microphone. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> so I need to. We need. I need to have. Okay, this is going to be a weird tangent, but we're going to go there anyway, just to interrupt your your train of thought. <sighs> okay, this just this risks me sounding like a real weirdo. I'm going to preface this by saying I do not own this thing, nor would I ever purchase this thing. If you want to, that's that's up to you. But okay, there is product. I think I've seen it in like a movie or something that there's underwear that has like a vibrator in it and you could give like the remote. I told you this is going to be a weird tangent, but like you could give your partner the remote to your vibrating underwear. (laughs) And like, I feel like this was in a movie somewhere and I don't remember why now, but the idea is like, Oh, you could be like, kind of saucy right and like other people won't know it and like oh how risque is that not my style personally but right um what i was gonna why i share that weird tidbit of knowledge that nobody needed is i wonder if there's something similar but there's like a wrist zapper and i could have the remote and when amy's not talking into the microphone i could like give her a little zap to remind her (laughs) instead of interrupting her and you probably completely lost your train of thought now. Well, now but that I, you brought up the panty vibrator. Oh, God. What now? Everything is gone. But yeah, no, I... I can't lose it. I think, again... You weren't going like, to hear it anyway, because she wasn't talking into the microphone anyway. That's true. That's true. I think um, what I was going to say, and again, this is just to reiterate that we have to be so humbled by the microbiome and what we don't know, like you were saying before, because again, like we're probably going to learn like new stuff all the time about how, like when we're trying to like manipulate it, there's collateral damage that we really don't understand. Like from a aggressive standpoint, I should say like trying to manipulate it where you're like just blatantly killing off a bunch of stuff and there's a time and place for that so it's not like you never take antibiotics or you never do an antifungal or something like that but you know it doesn't come without some risk of 
affecting the environment some way and, and in ways that we might not even totally understand yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's just a good kind of cautionary note. There's a lot we don't know about the microbiome and the mycobiome, the fungal microbiome, if you will. There's a lot we don't know about just the body and the immune system. And we need to always be a little bit cautious. Um, it's interesting that you talk to about like, taking antibiotics, and lowering endotoxin, and then the immune system gets lazy. Um, I don't know what I, I was actually going to share something similar. I'm going to word it differently, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of like the hygiene part of the hygiene hypothesis of allergic disease. And you guys are going to see why this comes up in a little bit, because that TH2 immunity that I mentioned, is like, the side of the immune system that is involved with allergic diseases. So this is where it ties in with the candida. Um, what can happen is either because the world around us and like overusing sanitizers and cleaners and hand sanitizers and wiping everything and like just not getting exposure to germs or the overuse of antibiotics or some combination thereof also, like, moving away from a rural, like, farm community and more people living in cities. Um, part of the hygiene hypothesis is that we have a lower burden of microorganisms in general and less diversity of microorganisms. So whether that is bacteria, fungi, viruses, parasites, you name it, all of that, um, I came across some stuff in studying for this episode that then you get less IL-12. This is one of those cytokines, one of the signaling molecules for the immune system. Fewer microbes means that you get less IL-12 stimulation. So your immune system is getting stimulated less. IL-12 is one of the signaling molecules of the Th1 immune response. So that other side of the seesaw. And then when you take away Th1 response, the natural thing that occurs is that you get more and more TH2 activity. And then that manifests symptomatically as, you know, allergic disease, asthma, eczema, hives, itchiness, seasonal allergies, food allergies, runny noses, you know, quote unquote, histamine intolerance, mast cell issues, like all of these allergic and quasi allergic diseases and symptoms. And it really makes you start worrying when you go down that rabbit hole, because then you revisit, okay, well, a lot of people with allergic diseases are told they need to do elimination diets. A lot of people with like mast cell and histamine issues will go on a great big histamine food elimination kick, and they whittle their diet down to nothing. Well, now you've got the double whammy of living in a more hygienic world and fewer microbes and the dysbiosis that comes with like the antibiotics and the sterilizing of the sanitizing of stuff. Now you're potentially going to shrink your diet down even more and you're going to lose diversity there. And you're just, it's, it's this path where the immune system tolerates less and less and less and less and less. And we've got to get in front of it again. We've got to introduce more microbes, not fewer, and we need more variety of foods, not less variety of foods, but it's so 
tricky to juggle that once somebody has already gone down that pathway for quite a while. Yeah, like you're digging yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole. And again, it's such a frustrating and sad conversation to have with clients who like all they want to do is get better and have like tried so many different strategies that have just kind of dug them deeper and deeper and deeper. And again, like the immune system side of that equation isn't really discussed. Um, Like again, maybe indirectly, like if you eliminate too many foods, I mean, I feel like we talk about it. I don't know how much it's talked about, but if you eliminate too many, about it all day, practically. Right. But like if you eliminate too many foods, like certain microbes get depleted, which then could affect the immune system. Um, Again, like we're talking about now, but I feel like, again, like it's not highlighted at, at all really. Um, or again, it's highlighted in the way of like your body could react to anything you're eating. Like, again, it's, it's more of this idea that you have to control your body's immune function by eliminating foods, which could be the exact opposite of what you need to do to help your immune system and to help your microbiome. And so that's like the sad part is I feel like when the immune system is acknowledged in these situations, it's more of like, well, your immune system's jacked up and could be reacting to all these things. And like, you need to eliminate this and that and that and this and whatever. And here's this whole list of food sensitivities that you're responding to. And it's, I think it gets boiled. The immune system also gets oversimplified in the microbiome space to where it's just like, oh, your immune system's reacting to everything and you need to control it with diet, which again, like, uh, it's just frustrating. It's kind of analogous to what they do in conventional medicine, honestly. Right. Like, if you think about it, this field is being a bunch of dang hypocrites yet again, because you go to an allergist and they do the skin prick test or they do some IgE testing or whatever, And they could tell you, oh, you are allergic to dust and dogs and grass. And then they send you home with the recommendation to avoid those things. Like, oh, don't go near dogs. Don't like roll around in the grass and make sure you like dust your house a lot and get like a dust ruffle for your bed or whatever, you know, and like allergen proof pillowcases. It's all... And those things can be helpful at times, but it's also like moving you closer to living in a bubble. And that's not 100% of the clinical picture. That can be a part of what you do, especially in the beginning, just to get some relief. But we, we should not need to go through life avoiding all of our potential allergens, all of our potential food sensitivities, all of the potential things we might react to. We really need to help the immune system understand that these things are not going to kill us, even something like a peanut, it's not going to kill you. A peanut allergy, even if it's anaphylactic, it's your immune system trying to protect you from something that you do not need protection against. It's a whoopsie daisy. Right. So well, in and to add to that too, you know, what is an out like what is an allergy shot protocol doing? It's like giving you little bits of whatever the allergen is to try to get your immune system to reprogram in a way so that it doesn't, it isn't like reacting to some of these things like it was in the past. Like if there are, I think some conventional approaches like, like allergy shots that are like the opposite of that, where you remove the allergen, it's like almost like, Oh, you need to expose yourself to build tolerance. And so 
Yeah, I think, again, like, it's so interesting because I think you're right. There's sometimes, like, a knee-jerk or or maybe some providers that are much more, like, pull back and, like, you know, remove yourself from these things. And then in reality, like, there's also other approaches that are, like, throw yourself at them. And, again, like, well, which one which one works? And maybe there's different circumstances for each. But, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, there's I think there's a balance, right? You don't, again, bring it back to fungi, you don't want too much fungi, or fungal growth, like, I think we can all agree on that. But you also want to tolerate what you do have. And you want to have some degree of a symbiotic relationship between you, your bacteria and your fungi. And a, a lot of that, again, plays in with the microbiome, the bacteria, do you have enough good bacteria? Do you have enough diversity? Do you have enough fiber intake and like lactobacilli? Do you have enough of these good things that they are able to inhibit and outweigh any bad stuff? So that's something that we've talked about uh, even in the previous episode. Um, with the immune system thing, again, I, I, I'll pose this to you. And some of this might be familiar to you guys if you go back to like, the mast cell and the histamine episodes or videos that we've done. But there's basically a a tipping point for the immune system where it's like a seesaw or a teeter-totter, whatever you grew up calling it. But these two immune cells that command a lot more of the immune system kind of go up and down together. When one goes up, the other one goes down and vice versa. So you, you tend to get a predominance of one or the other, or they can be relatively balanced relatively balanced would be like a healthy person that if you get an infection, you have the ability to mount an appropriate immune response against that pathogen. But in the absence of a pathogen, you don't have a lot of like squirrely weird immune stuff going on, like not a lot of autoimmunity or allergies or itchiness or histamine issues, you're just kind of normal. A lot of chronically ill people, a lot of I would say the majority of chronically ill people have some degree or another of like a histamine TH2 dominant presentation, where you start getting that TH2 system floating up. And the TH1 system might not be mm-hmm. doing its job as efficiently as it could. And the downside to that not only is like the TH2 world, buddy buddy with things like mast cells and B cells, which are the antibody producing cells, you're going to get a lot more like itchiness, redness, phlegm, mucus, antibodies, all of the stuff we associate with the allergic response. You're going to get way more of that if TH2 starts to float up and goes unchecked. But also the reason why this is a pathogen evasion strategy, the reason why candida intent, as far as we can tell, candida intentionally does this to the immune system is specifically to favor its own survival because the part of the immune system that would be getting rid of candida for you is the TH1 side. And that's the side that's buddy buddy with like macrophages. Um, To some extent, neutrophils are going to do a lot of this work too. That's kind of a different part of the immune system, a different branch, but you want the T helper one cells, you want the macrophages, you want the neutrophils 
to work really well, even natural killer cells, you want them to work really, really well and be really efficient in their job so that they correctly identify the fungus as being overgrown and being a threat and that they can mount the response and they can take care of any excess that you might have. And again, it's going to be really hard if that seesaw is askew and you have this over-representation of allergic, histamine-driven, antibody-driven immunology and like asthma, eczema, itchiness, urticaria, you know, that sort of stuff. And you have less efficient immunity for other tasks, such as getting rid of fungi. And that's where a lot of people get stuck. Yeah, no, it's such an interesting discussion. I like how you laid it out. And um, in terms of like balancing that out, like what are your, do you have typical strategies that you go to in terms of balancing the uh, TH1, TH2 side of the immune function? Yeah, I think first off, um, I probably wouldn't Google this specifically. Like the thing is, and I'll share why. Um, so we, we talked about TH1, TH2 stuff much differently up until about 12 years ago, Mm. like in the research, pretty, pretty definitively, they thought that TH2 were like the good guys and they thought TH1 were the bad guys. Right. And there were many, 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 many research articles showing that there's an increase in TH1 cells or their activity with virtually every type of autoimmune disease. And and there was a lot of talk of like TH1 cells are inflammatory. And then I think it was 2010, maybe 2009, 2010, somewhere like that. They discovered a, a different type of immune cell that we did not know existed. So this goes back to like, how much we don't know. So in like 2010, we discovered a new type of immune cell called TH17. And oh, whoopsie daisy, we didn't know that it was there because we thought they were TH1 cells all along. Oh my gosh. They look mighty similar. They like one of their cytokines and one of their receptors is 50% identical to TH1 cells. And we just so happened to be looking at that side of that receptor all this time. So scientists just assumed that they were TH1 cells. Now we know TH1 cells, the way that they and their friends do their work is somewhat inflammatory because getting rid of pathogens is kind of inflammatory business. Um, But they're not the big bad boogeyman that we thought they were. Those are the TH17 cells, and those are associated with cancer and autoimmunity Mm. and a lot of chronic nasty diseases. So I would just invite you to be cautious because what you probably will see if you Google this is you will see lists of herbs that stimulate TH1 or stimulate TH2. And you'll even find lists of like what autoimmune diseases are TH1 dominant. That's all horseradish. Just throw that out in the gutter of your mind. Um, the herbs that stimulate one or the other, there might be a little bit of credibility to here or there. So like echinacea, definitely a TH1 stimulant. Um, Mm. so like there are some pieces that might be useful. Um, I don't know how much I super believe a lot of those lists though, but you're going to see it it always references back to Datis Karazian. They have it on like the AIP website. They have it on a lot of like autoimmune blogs, 
So I would just be really cautious uh, looking at some of those lists. But generally, what I would tend to think is, again, if the seesaw is askew, right, you have an overrepresentation of allergic stuff and like histamine stuff, and you might have an underrepresentation of other immune activity, you could still go back to things that are generally good for histamine and allergies, right? So like quercetin, vitamin C, um, uh, luteolin, you know, there's um, even like for overt mast cell disease, maybe cromulin, which is a prescription medication, maybe even something like Allegra or Zyrtec or something. Um, there's a, a lot of different compounds that have antihistamine or anti-allergenic effect. There's one called Perilla that I really like. I think um, Pure Encapsulations has a product called TH2 Modulator, I believe, and it's in that product, um, if I remember correctly. So there's there's many different strategies for getting like the allergies to calm down. Also, some degree of avoiding the allergen can be helpful. So like, if you know for a fact that you're allergic to cats, and you live with cats, I mean, I'm, I'm never, I'm almost never the person Ooh, to you're tell somebody a to nerve. leave home. You're striking a nerve, Nikki. No, I'm the biggest cat and dog person ever. I, I grew up on a farm. Just but, joking with you. But like, I, I worked with one guy just as an example. And he knew for a fact that he was allergic to cats. And he and his wife had three cats. And oh a lot gosh. of his symptoms were allergic in nature. And I did bring up like, ah, that's going to make it really, really hard for you to heal mm, because yeah. you're revving your immune system up every single day. And I adore animals. I adore cats. And I, I don't say this lightly, but even like, I don't know, like get creative. Can you like pay a family member to take your cats for a few months even and just give you that space so that your immune system isn't freaking out 24-7? Or could you like keep the animals in like one part of the house and have one room that is like cat free or dog free? It's really tough, but some degree of avoiding the allergens might also be useful with, with this crowd. Um, I think it depends on the person. And then there's also the world of like, Acknowledging that Th1 immunity is the side that is not only good with fungi, but also viruses. Mm. Probably a lot of the quote unquote antiviral herbs or a lot of the quote unquote immune boosting herbs that you would think of would probably be helpful in this situation too. And that opens the door for things like, again, echinacea, Andrographis, maybe elderberry syrup. Um, you know, there's there's loads more depending how deep you want to dive into this. Um, and there are some that are very low dose herbs, but you might even think about like immune boosting strategies. Astragalus is one that I forgot to mention. Um, but just thinking about it from like a kind of parallel to if I wanted to boost my immune system because I was getting viral infections out the wazoo or I was getting mm. sinus infections out the wazoo and I just wanted to strengthen my immune system so I didn't get sick as much, you could kind of loosely think of that in the TH1 camp. And then again, on the other side, you could dampen the allergies um, 
I think the usefulness of those strategies will differ from person to person. But I also want to go back to what you already pointed out. Going back to the unsexy, unglamorous basics. Super important. So don't get lost in this episode thinking that you need to like read up on TH17 cells. Because sleep deprivation, darn sure freaks out your immune system and Mm. your gut. Stress chemistry, huge TH2 inducer. Like Mm. if you want to shove yourself into TH2 dominance and TH2 polarization and allergies, just stress yourself out. And then you're almost guaranteed to do that because cortisol is going to shove you that direction very forcefully, Mm. let alone the pathogen evasion stuff that we talked about. So like sleep, stress, Again, like adequate nutrition, if you don't have adequate calories, or like protein or fat or zinc or whatever, you're just not going to make a lot of white blood cells, period, let alone the types that you might need for this sort of stuff. Right. Yeah, it's so funny. It's so funny too. like, I went probably 10 years without getting sick. And I've been sick like three, three times this year, (laughs) like postpartum, like just you know, sleep deprived, stressed, new baby. Like, I just think, you know, it is funny how the immune system never skips a beat when you're in a, in a, uh, what's a good word? Like a susceptible period of time. But yeah, I think you're right. Like if you're not sleeping, you're not eating properly, you're not moving somewhat regularly, you're not getting sun, like our outdoor light exposure, like that kind of stuff. Like if you're not checking some of those boxes, like it's not worth spending money on the herb or not. It might not be worth spending tons of money on herbs and all these strategies when you really would just benefit and might not even need the herbs if you just got more sleep. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and again, like I think we keep emphasizing the unsexy, unglamorous basics we really need to rebrand them, though. I think calling they them the are basics. Sexy. They are sexy. Well, no, not even that. But calling them basics doesn't do it justice. I think that I need to co- consciously decide to call them foundations. Because or like that fundamentals. Paints, I like that because yeah, the sports like that, analogy. That paints more of a picture of, again, like, you can't build a pyramid without building the base of the pyramid first. Like, don't get lost in the internet looking for the perfect antimicrobial if you're sleeping like shit or if you're 10 out of 10 stressed all the time or you know or even like another one i don't i don't know if i would call this a foundation per se but it's it's close closer to being a foundation if you have a ton of like chemical shit in and around your environment right that also can yield th2 polarization because like you know, I'm just picturing, you know, microwaving in plastic, drinking from plastic water bottles, slathering on the phthalates and the parabens, all of the chemical garbage, heaven forbid, you're spraying your lawn with glyphosate or something. And then you're like cleaning with bleach and cleaning with Clorox. Um, This is the sort of stuff too, that little by little that chips away at your glutathione. And you need glutathione to mount an appropriate TH1 response. Mm. So if you're chipping away at your glutathione levels with toxic burden of junk 
in your environment and you're not being mindful of that, that could potentially tip you more towards that allergy histamine TH2 polarized direction. Um, I don't, I don't want this episode to turn into overwhelm and like paranoia though. So like, right. I don't know if I would tackle that first personally. I feel like right. I would work on the sleep and the stress and the nutritional adequacy first. And then maybe you could start swapping out products. I just, I don't want people to get really overwhelmed with this right. episode thinking they have a million things to do. Right. Right. Yeah. I think again, like you yeah. could kind of make those swaps over a broad period of time, just as products run out, just try to buy like a little bit more, a better, lower ingredient, lower toxicity product. Um, yeah. As That's time goes on. It. Right. Right. You know, like as I ran out of my humongous stash of Bath and Body Works lotions, because I was obsessed, um, I started replacing them with slightly greener versions of lotions and potions and right yeah and like deodorant whatever else but that's that's a whole we've done a whole detox episode i think it was new year's two years ago that we covered that topic um but uh but yeah again it just goes to show you like when you hyper focus on the pathogen hyper focus on eradication you're going to have blinders on and you're not going to see these other things that are absolutely affecting your case. But again, you can't see them because you have blinders on. Right. So again, like if you're just down the rabbit hole of like looking for the perfect antimicrobial or the perfect candida diet and how you're going to starve and kill this thing, you might not even realize that you're a bit immunocompromised. Maybe your white blood cell count is like low or on the lower end of normal and you get sniffles moderately frequently and you get seasonal allergies and like some itchy patches and like you could be humming along at this level. A lot of people are and, and not necessarily realize it. Um, let me think too. Like, I literally have a little notepad open right here because I wanted to make sure I touched on a bunch of this stuff. Uh, oh, here's another one. This is kind of unrelated to the most recent part of the conversation. Do you mind if I hop over to something else for a moment? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, you know how people talk about inflammation and like inflammation is bad. Antioxidants are good. Right. And it's again, very black and white. We know that that's not true in part because we know that nothing is that simple right. in the human body. Um, a lot of what we would call inflammation is a type of immune activity, right? So like if you have an infection and you become inflamed, it's because your immune system is trying to take care of the pathogen for you. Right. If you have the flu or if you have, you know, food poisoning or if you have a skin infection, like the redness, the swelling, the fever, all of that stuff it's because the immune system is kicking it into high gear, helping you get rid of whatever that thing is. And inflammation is very important and very protective in the right amount at the right time. As long as you can get over the hump to the other side and you can get back to a normal baseline and you don't get stuck in that inflammatory process forever and ever. Another reason why inflammation is really important though, and and again, like this is just to noodle on. I hope this doesn't overwhelm and freak people out. Um we maybe should 
pause at the thought of using like anti-inflammatories willy-nilly in our protocols. So for example, like turmeric, I think everybody has the mindset of like, oh, turmeric is good for everything. If you research it, that that plant could do literally anything. It's good for your kidney. It's good for your liver. It's good for your skin. It's good for your heart. It's good for your brain. It's good for whatever. So I might as well throw that in too. And I don't know. I think I would caution you against that. For example, one thing that came up when I was reading for this is that one of the primary inflammatory pathways, um, again, when we talk about inflammation called STAT3, one of the roles of STAT3 is to tell the epithelial lining to produce antimicrobial peptides. So similarly, like I kind of wonder, I've seen people even recently who have said, oh, I did not, I didn't respond well to turmeric or I didn't respond well to, you know, resveratrol or green tea. Maybe one possible hypothesis out of many is that you lowered inflammation and that lowered the antimicrobial peptides you were producing, aka like your natural homemade antibiotics in the gut. And then that maybe would allow fungal or bacterial pathogens to bloom. So again, like I just I, I pause when I see people like throwing stuff in just for the heck of it, or like, oh, this won't hurt or oh, turmeric's good for everything. So I'm going to take it too. I think we need to be a bit more methodical and thoughtful than that. Um, Because again, like, that inflammation has a purpose and the inflammation is helping you fight your pathogens. So if you truly, truly have an overgrowth of something bad or something pathogenic, you might not want to do the anti-inflammatory stuff yet. You might want to enhance immune function and clear the pathogen first. Then after the fact, maybe that's when you take the turmeric or whatever it might be. But that I thought was very interesting too. Yeah, I think it goes, and I might have mentioned this in like some a recent episode, like um, when it comes to like inflammation, even from like exercise, like you're not going to build muscle unless you inflame the tissue. Um, and then again, your body should be able to recover from working out and build muscle and adapt based on that activity. Now, again, like if you don't have the resources on board to like provide the after effect to kind of calm down and give you an anti-inflammatory response, that's bigger than the initial inflammation. That's essentially again, like what I think goes into building some of these muscles is like you have the bit of inflammation and there's a hormesis effect that comes in and kind of builds the muscle, makes you stronger kind of synonymous to like immune function in a way it's like well if you're over exercising and there's too much inflammation for your body to handle that's not good Mm. if you take vitamin c or turmeric post-workout it can inhibit your ability to create enough inflammation to build muscle so they've shown that in studies um so again like it kind of goes to show you that things tend to go more awry from an inflammation standpoint when everything's dysregulated. Like if it's just like off the rails inflammation, that's not good. Like again, where it never can be shut off. Um, Or again, like it's not targeted at the right thing. 
but you know, to not have any inflammation to build muscle or to address pathogens or to heal a cut that you have, like all of these things are super important. Um, and again, like I totally agree, like you might want to think a little bit about like how you're moving through a protocol from an, from a immune system standpoint and how that might be affecting your body's ability to attack things and to actually produce inflammation, which is a, isn't good or bad. It's only, it only can be problematic if it's like out of balance in a way. Yeah. And I, I think that, cause again, I want to keep this as practical as possible for the folks at home. Um, oh, I'm just, I'm trying to think of how to articulate the cautionary tale. I guess one I would caution you against hopping on trends, taking something because an influencer said it was great, taking something because you found an article online or because your grandmother took turmeric and it was amazing for her. Actually, I don't know what that... It's always going to be a friend. It's not going to be your grandma telling you to take turmeric. I don't know where I came up with that one. Um, But you get the idea like this like willy-nilly prescription of herbs and supplements, I think can be potentially dangerous, or at the bare minimum, it's going to be ineffective. Typically, we're like, Oh, I took turmeric, again, because I read about it, or I saw an influencer talk about it, or my great sister's aunt took it and said it was great. Um, Or like, I just think it's generally healthy. And I'm just, you know, trying to get healthy. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's the best way to go about with it with supplements. So well, by all and means, to add, and to add one little thing there too, like even if you were going to take, if there was a good reason to take turmeric or a good reason to take some of these herbs, like you also wouldn't want to just be on them forever. Like sometimes again, like I'll have people that are like, well, I'll, I'm taking curcumin for joint pain every day for the rest of my life. And it's like, could there be some other sol- solutions that might work a little bit better? Or again, like, could you do it maybe in a period of very high inflammation just to kind of help you get through something and then try some other things. But I think sometimes like people lean and do like maintenance dosing of some of these things that might not be wise long-term, but maybe using them in the short term could be valuable. So I think like sometimes there are situations like that too. Yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll suggest this too. Sometimes with herbs, this comes up. Um, Just like the idea that if you, overuse an herb like say one example that comes to mind is echinacea echinacea is usually thought of as a more like short to moderate term use herb i think you know you would take it for like a, a week or a couple of weeks you wouldn't necessarily take echinacea every day throughout the year to boost your immune system like there are other herbs that could boost your immune system that you could take day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, something like astragalus or eulithro, right? where it would be much more appropriate for long-term use. But like similarly, you know, analogous to this, like if you had chronic viral issues, if you were always getting sick or if you had like chronic EBV symptoms and you found that echinacea was helpful for you, but then you took echinacea every day and you were just going to take that forever what's going to happen if you get the flu or if you get COVID or if you get 
an acute infection where echinacea would typically help you. And now you're already using that resource. Do you just like triple up the dose of your echinacea and blow through it? Or, you know, is that off the table for you? So I I do agree. I think that reserving these herbal medicines for the time and place where they would be most helpful and just being a little bit cautious of using them chronically to band-aid symptoms. Otherwise, I, I do think that there's uh, merit in being cautious with that. Um, it's not, again, it's not always because these things would be overtly harmful to take them all day, every day. It's just when you really, really need them, they might not be as effective. Or maybe, maybe you're using the turmeric to band-aid something and there's something else bubbling beneath the surface that would help your joint pain, right? right. Like, and the example of like, oh, I'm just going to take turmeric for my joint pain every day. That's not that far removed from the person who says I'm going to take ibuprofen every day for my joint pain. Right. It's natural and that's better for sure. But it's not, it, it's, it's very similar as far as like the mentality of it. You're just band-aiding that symptom indefinitely versus if, if you could figure out the reason why that joint was aching and giving you a hard time. And if you could correct that issue, potentially that would be the ideal situation. Um, so yeah, I think cautionary note on willy nilly use of supplements just in general. Um, and, and again, just going back to these critters are smart. I don't want to say they're smarter than us, but they sure as heck are smart and they want to survive very much. And they have the ability to hijack our machinery and hijack our immune system to favor their own survival. So again, like if something like, like candida, if it's going to stimulate or favor tolerance, well, that tolerance is telling the immune system not to attack. And in the event of a fungal infection or candida overgrowth or something, that's not necessarily the best thing to have. Like you want more kill signals and fewer tolerate signals in that situation. Right. Um, But acknowledging that candida tends to just promote tolerance. And if you knock out a bunch of candida, you might find that you're more inflamed. And I guess the way to word it is that you might need to take strategies to replace that tolerogenic signal. So if you're getting a bunch of tolerance signaling from candida and you want to knock back the candida, maybe you want to make sure that you have the dietary diversity to support butyrate production. Or maybe you want to make sure that you have the sulfur-rich food and the protein consumption to support glutathione production. Or maybe you want to make sure that your vitamin D and your vitamin A is rock solid And that way, taking away that signaling isn't going to make as big of a difference for you. So that's one way to look at it. Um, And then again, acknowledging that the other major pathogen evasion strategy for fungi, again, inducing tolerance is one, but B is it's pushing you into that allergic TH2, mast cell, histamine, mucus, boogers, antibodies, allergy kind of world and doing things to both inhibit the allergies and the histamine and like deal with that, but also just like boosting the immune system, boosting immune function. Like those things can be really, really helpful 
uh, right. when you're trying to take care of candida. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It's like, you want to cover all the bases. You can't just kind of think that you can go in and just blast this thing without supporting yeah. it from different angles. I feel like that model uh, in a weird way, I feel like that model works a little bit better when the person is like super new and kind of ignorant. Yeah. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say somebody knows nothing about gut health. They don't follow anybody on Instagram that talks it. They just follow the Kardashians on Instagram. Like they don't know nothing about the microbiome, SIBO, nada. Uh, normal person, no interest in gut health whatsoever. They take antibiotics for whatever, like sinus infection, UTI, whatever it might be. And then bam, they get vaginal candida overgrowth or they get thrush or they get some sort of candida something. I think the, the times where like, oh, I'm just going to kill it. And then they kill it and they're fine. And they skip off into the rainbows. These are the people where they're like, oh, I think I have like a yeast problem. And they go on Amazon and they find like one supplement with good reviews they take the one supplement and it kills the candida, but also because this hypothetical imaginary person doesn't know very much about gut health or health in general, like they're not, they're not entrenched in it. They're not like orthorexic about it yet. Right. This hypothetical person has not really changed their diet much, or maybe they just cut back on sugar and did nothing else. In that scenario, that person would still have some dietary diversity they would still have some fiber consumption, maybe, right? Because they right. haven't cut out wheat and beans and rice and all this other stuff and fruit. Those are the people where it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to change nothing else. I'm just going to take the anti-candida supplement. Sometimes you hear stories of people like that where it's just that easy for them. They knock it out and they're fine. And ironically, it might be because they're eating the pizza and the Doritos right. and like the junk food. I think that's a, a point of pain for a lot of people dealing with this stuff is like they're trying so hard and they're trying so hard to make their diet perfect and their supplements perfect and their world perfect. And then they see somebody else who like, gets one vaginal yeast infection, takes fluconazole once. They change nothing about their diet. Right. They're still like going to the Cheesecake Factory every weekend for <laughs> a girl's night. And like, they're totally fine. Did they get over the candida versus the person who's trying to do everything perfectly? But again, my point in saying this is just trying to do everything perfectly and like the amount of stress and the amount of dietary restriction right. that comes from that kind of like orthorexic behavior falling all the way down the rabbit hole, like that might be the exact thing keeping some people stuck, right. in my opinion. 100%. I agree. Don't stop trying to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. Just, Nobody's perfect. Isn't that a song? Is that a Miley Cyrus song? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. But my the brain is song... turning to mush and my boob <laughs> is turning... Right. Boop. The only Miley Cyrus song I really know is the Wrecking Ball song, oh, yeah. because again, I have a Christmas ornament right. of Miley Cyrus riding on a Wrecking Ball that I made. So that's the only one I know of hers. But um, but yeah, I think that was a little bit of a brain melter, perhaps. I hope it's so hard with podcasting because we don't have like a visual mm -hmm. 
component so much. I mean, if you're on YouTube right now, you can obviously see us, but we can't like doodle and put stuff up on the screen. I'm used to having my whiteboard on my YouTube channel. So it's a little tricky to like articulate all of this without a visual aid. I hope it made sense. And I hope it didn't feel like scattered and all over the place. Um, as a visual creature, I kind of cringe because I know we were talking about a lot of different like seesaws and pathways and stuff. So I just I hope it made sense for everybody. Um, but I think that's just about a wrap for our advanced candida, uh, ibidology of candida discussion. Look, I'm boring the snot out of Amy. She's yawning. No, I'm My like, goodness. I did not sleep very well last night. I apologize. I was out late and then Cece just doesn't like sleeping. So there's that. As is her right as a baby. Yeah. Um, well, that's all right. We'll we'll wrap it up here. But do you want to close with anything? We already shared the good people. Or we already told the good people our Instagram handles. Hmm. So I don't know we what else is left. We should at some point like pull people as to like if there's any co- topics. I don't know how we would do. I guess we would do that on our own Instas. But like we should pull. We could. Do a poll. Or again, have, just ask people topics. I have a survey going for like... Um, like YouTube? I do that for my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. I have an ongoing survey mm-hmm. that I sometimes link in my videos. Um, it's pretty easy to make a survey, but um, and do something like that. So yeah, maybe we could make that and link it in the yeah, be bio cool. of Instagram because we we do have an Instagram for the podcast. We don't use it all that much, to be yeah, honest. I don't, but well, we do have one. We could put a link in the bio on that account. Yeah, yeah. We'll get back to you, people. We'll get back to you. We'll 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 we're let you in weigh progress. In on we're a work in prog- progress. You know, it's I haven't said this in a while, but you get what you get on the IBS Freedom Podcast, right? Like it's true. This is a we're not professional podcasters. We are working with real people like you every day. So we, you know, the fact that we sat down and recorded this podcast episode in a way that's just got to be enough on some it's level. True. But we will. We will try to do more official podcasty stuff, like asking you what topics you would like to see and introducing ourselves properly every like what would you say like every hundred episodes or so we can introduce ourselves properly yeah sounds about right yeah, that's that probably feels comfortable um so we'll do that and then we will see you right back here same time same time same place on the ibs freedom podcast toodaloo